And as I said a minute ago, just in case you weren't here when I said it, uh, we are going to be a little bit long today. And if you have to go, I fully understand we're used to people getting up and moving around and people coming by and children shouting and planes going by, so it's not going to distract me and I apologize. But uh, it's something that I cannot shorten and feel that I've done the resurrection of Jesus Christ to service. And a few times while I'm speaking today, it may sound like I'm getting a little angry at things, and that's because Paul was a little angry at things. And uh, I'm not at all. I'm just making a logical defense for the resurrection, and he does it in a way which negates it in order to validate it. So before we get started, I have a question for you. And let me you can answer out loud, or you can nod, or you can just think about it. Was the resurrection of Jesus Christ a miracle? I got some no's and I got some yeses. I know that the no's came from my Bible class. I <laughs> well, let's define what a miracle is for you so that you know what a miracle is. And then from there, you can decide again. A miracle will have five main elements. First, a miracle has unusual character. It is an out-of-the-ordinary event. A person walking on water would be a miracle because it is not an ordinary event. Secondly, a miracle has a theological dimension. It is an act of God. For example, the burning bush that spoke to Moses was not consumed. Plus, a bush that is speaking is a bush that is speaking. It's not normal. Third, a miracle has a moral dimension. It is a visible act which reflects the invisible moral character of God. The parting of the Red Sea to let the people of Israel through reflected God's truthful nature as a redeemer. I will redeem you, and he redeemed them. Fourth, a miracle has a doctrinal dimension. It is connected either directly or indirectly with a truth claim. A prophet that spoke something would happen, and then it did happen, confirmed that it was a miracle, because only God can say with absolute assurance that something will happen in the future when it does happen. This is not the same thing as making a good guess or making an educated guess that later comes true. Isaiah the prophet predicting that a virgin would conceive is miraculous because virgins do not get pregnant. And fifth, a miracle has what we would call a teleological dimension. This is something that has in its cause an end which is, has a very specific purpose. A miracle's purpose is to glorify God. Magic is not a miracle because it doesn't glorify God. A magic act can never be considered a miracle. So was Jesus' resurrection a miracle? We'll go through those five. Was it unusual? Yes, it was a unique occurrence in all of human history. There are people that were brought back to life in the Bible. We had Elijah the prophet brought somebody back. Elisha the prophet brought somebody back. Jesus in John chapter 11 brought Lazarus out of the tomb. Uh, in the book of Acts, we have a couple people. Um, Peter brought back a girl named Dorcas or Tabitha, which means gazelle. Uh, and then we also have Paul later in the book of Acts brought back a boy named Eutychus. So we have these people that are brought back to life, but they died again. They were not resurrected. Resurrected is a different category than resuscitation. So it was a unique occurrence. Was the resurrection an act of God? Yes, the Bible says that Jesus was raised by the power of God. Did it demonstrate God's moral character? Yes, the wages of sin is death, and Jesus never sinned, and therefore it was morally correct that Jesus would be resurrected. 
Did the resurrection occur in conjunction with a truth claim? The answer is yes. Jesus said, I will die, I will be raised on the third day, and guess what? It happened. So it was in conjunction with the truth claim. And finally, did the resurrection of Jesus Christ bring glory to God? Absolutely, and it does even to this day as people around the world glorify God for what he did in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So by all five definitions, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a miracle. But let's ask another question. If something must happen, is that a miracle? If I let go of this piece of metal and it falls to the ground, is it a miracle? No. The reason why is the law of gravity exists. If I heat up water, is the boiling of water a miracle? No, because the laws of energy are set. How about if I shave? If I shave, do I go from being ugly to handsome? Is that a miracle? Well, that may be a miracle, so we'll, we'll, stop, at the, uh, we'll stop at the boiling water question, okay? So if something must happen, is it a miracle when it happens? And the reason why I ask this is because Peter, in Acts chapter 2, when speaking to Israel on the day of Pentecost, says these words, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Why wasn't it possible that death could hold Jesus? This is important and it will hopefully help you understand the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and how it pertains to you as well. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus because as I said just a moment ago, the wages of sin is death. Although Jesus' resurrection bears every necessary requirement for it to be a miracle, it was impossible for him not to resurrect. The very laws of gravity, energy, or motion are easier to overcome than for the death of Jesus Christ to have been the end of Jesus Christ. So in answer to this question, I'm going to waffle so I don't get in trouble with God, and I will say that Jesus' resurrection was a miraculously necessary event. So what does this have to do with you? Today, we're going to look over Paul's primary discussion of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians. And hopefully, it will bring a little bit more light to the glorious work of Jesus Christ and how it actually involves you if you have called on him. Spring is a time of renewal and it's a time of regeneration. In the spring, things that seem dead pop right back into life. The flowers come out in such a dazzling display of beauty and smell and colors that the bleakness of winter simply disappears from our memories, just like the sadness of the tomb disappeared from the minds and the hearts of the disciples when they realized the significance of Jesus' resurrection. Within the past week, right here on Siesta Key, the night-blooming ja jasmine has popped open, and I tell you, it fills the room of my house at night with the smell of its beauty, just like the oil of spikenard filled the room where Jesus sat and Mary anointed his feet with it. The rains came recently. As a matter of fact, it rained just a couple days ago. And the ferns, which cling to the oak trees around here, which crinkle up and look completely dead, sprouted right back to their beautiful state of verdant lushness, just like the light of life returned to the dead body of our Lord and Savior, our beloved 
Jesus. And the gold trees, you all know, you've been up and down these roads. They have bloomed and they have given us a vivid show of beauty. They adorn the streets. They adorn the avenues of our little island home, just as the resurrection of Jesus Christ adorns the heart of every single Christian with that hope in them. Is it any wonder then that God chose the springtime for the resurrection? Although the Bible makes other types of applications, one of the applications it makes very specifically is that God uses the nature and the cycles of the nature and of the seasons to make spiritual applications. The seemingly endless beauty of the spring season which is coming to us and to the rest of the world is a reflection of the truly infinitely beauty of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ standing victoriously outside of the tomb where his dead body had been laid just a couple days earlier. Here's our text verse for today. Mark 16, verse 6. He is risen. May God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. It is the risen Christ, the gospel's validation. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul gave the Corinthians, and hence us, the gospel message about Jesus Christ, and he says it is what saves us. He, Paul, is the herald to the church, and he wanted to ensure that absolutely nothing would ever be added to or subtracted from the gospel message. In his letter to the Galatians, in fact, he is so clear about the importance of not adding to or subtracting from this message of Jesus Christ that he says these words. But even if we, if Paul himself and the people with him, or an angel from heaven preached any other gospel to you than that which have, we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. The word there, accursed, is anathema. It's to be completely removed from the presence of any good, any relation at all with God. And he's saying that is the consequences of changing that. And he preempted many false prophets in the years that would come by this statement, if we are an angel from heaven. And the reason why is because if you know in 622 AD, we had Muhammad and he received the Quran. And the Quran was supposedly received by the angel Gabriel. The Quran contradicts the Bible. The Quran says that God has no son. That's their principal tenet in Islam. It's called the sin of shirk, to believe that God has a partner assigned to him. And then, of course, we have um, Christianity, which says that God has a son. In fact, without God having a son, there would be no, no Christianity at all if he didn't have a son. And so he is saying that that is accursed. And then you come to the 1800s, and you get people like Joseph Smith, who is the founder of Mormonism. He supposedly had angelic revelations, and they were made into the Book of Mormon. Well, of course, that contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a polytheistic religion, and therefore it is accursed. It does not teach the truth of the gospel. Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventists said that she had angelic revelations, and these do not match the Bible. The Bible is sealed, the 66 books of the Bible. The name of the last book of the Bible is Revelation, and the reason why it's called Revelation is because it is the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. It is the end of all things. We started in the garden, we end in a garden. 
we started without sin, we end without sin. There's no need to add anything to it. It is our revealed word to us. So please remember that the gospel is very, very special to God. And it cannot be added to or detracted from without becoming anathema in the souls and in the lives of the people who preach it and the people who accept those messages. So we need to be very careful how we handle these things. Now he's going to give us the gospel in verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That is the first part of the gospel, is that we have sinned. We inherited Adam's sin, and from Adam, every human being since him has been born in sin. If you don't believe that premise, then you need to go to the 51st Psalm, where it says, surely I was conceived in iniquity, in sin, I came from my mother's womb. It says about Seth, the first son of Adam in the godly line down to Jesus Christ, it says that Adam had a son, Seth, in his likeness. It doesn't say in the likeness of God. We are in God's image, but he bore the likeness of Adam, meaning fallen. And we are all fallen in Adam. And Christ came to die for our sins, to be the substitute for our sins. So that's the first part of the gospel message. And that he was buried. That's important because he really went into the grave and he really laid in a grave dead. It wasn't just resuscitating on a doctor's table. Our heart stopped and we got him pumping again or somebody came and gave him CPR or some adrenaline. He really was in the grave and he was really dead. Okay, that's the second part of the gospel message. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The scriptures that Paul is writing about is the entire Old Testament. There was no New Testament when Paul wrote this and therefore it is the Old Testament. And the Old Testament testifies to the Trinity. It testifies to the death of a coming Messiah and to the uh, resurrection of a coming Messiah. I just read that out of Isaiah 53 where it says that he shall see the light of life. The resurrection is testified in the Old Testament. And this is the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. Every type, every figure, every shadow of the Old Testament points to the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, and he was seen by Cephas, meaning Peter, Simon Peter, and then by the twelve, meaning the apostles gathered together. They all saw him and they all testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here is a question. If I believe that Jesus Christ came out of the grave and I'm supposed to go blow myself up and kill people in order to uh, get to heaven, is that validation that Jesus came out of the grave? No, and the reason why is because I have not seen the risen Christ. People that go and blow themselves up around the world for Allah and for Islam are doing it based on faith, not based on sight, okay? There is a huge theological difference between me believing something and acting on it, going over to a foreign country and being a missionary, than it is for 12 men to have seen the risen Christ and to have said, I am willing to die for what I have seen, not my faith, but what I have actually seen. And all of them, except the apostle John, died for what they believed. Only a fool would die for something he knows is not true. So this is the most sure thing in the entire ancient world. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he was seen by the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a term that Paul uses for a believer in Jesus Christ when he dies physically. Because Jesus said, he who believes in me will never die. They are alive forever from the moment that God 
regenerates their spirit. Uh, it's John chapter 3. It says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And when you are born again, you are eternal in your nature. Adam is dead spiritually. What, what did it say back in Genesis 3? On the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. The next day, Adam was still walking around. Was God a liar? No. Adam died spiritually. He remained a physical being without a regenerate spirit. Jesus Christ came to undo that, and we're going to see that in a little while. But 500 people, some had fallen asleep, but the few that had fallen asleep do not negate the others of these 500, which all said that Jesus Christ was truly resurrected from the grave. And any one of those people, or any of the people that they told, their family and their friends, thousands of people could have written a document and said, this never happened. And there is not one shred of evidence in antiquity to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And any one of them could have brought this to an end. But 12 men that saw him went to their death or to torture for the sake of Jesus Christ, knowing that he was alive. These 500 as well. After that, he was seen by James. That is speaking of James, the Lord's brother. It is not speaking of James, the uh, brother of John, the apostle. James, the Lord's half-brother, who wrote the 59th book of the Bible, James, and he was also the first leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's recorded in Acts chapter 15. He saw it, he testified to it, he became the first leader of the church. And then, by all the apostles. Who are all of the apostles? Those are probably the 72 that Jesus sent out throughout Israel saying, go and preach the good news of the kingdom. So you have almost 600 people that have witnessed the resurrected Christ and none of them, none of them, did anything but testify to the surety of it. Yes, we have a sure word that Jesus Christ really died, really was buried, and really was resurrected. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, saw the risen Christ when? And we're going to talk about him more in a little while. He saw him on the way to Damascus. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was a blasphemer. He was an angry man. And yet, he became the greatest apostle of the Bible, bringing many sons to glory through his writings and through his teaching of Jesus Christ. And we will get more into Paul in just a little while. There's a man named Simon Greenleaf. He was one of the principal founders of Harvard Law School. And he was challenged. This is back in the 19th century. He was challenged by his students when he dismissed the Bible kind of, you know, jokingly or however he did it. And they said, well, if you're going to uh, nay say the Bible, then why don't you, you're a great legal scholar, why don't you prove that it's wrong, okay? And so he went out to disprove the biblical testimony concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was absolutely certain that an examination of the internal witnesses of the Gospels would dispel all of the myths at the heart of Christianity. And so as an objective, unbiased atheist, he went in to disprove the Bible from a legal standpoint. And when he got done with his analysis, he says there is nothing more sure in antiquity than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He gave his life to the Lord, and he became a great champion of this gospel message. And he became the father of what is called judicial apologetics, or defending the Bible from a legal standpoint. And today, you may have heard of a guy named Lee Strobel. He follows on in the footsteps of Simon Greenleaf. He is a judicial apologist. He's somebody that says, I was an atheist, and I'm a lawyer. He was an ACLU lawyer, by the way, and he turned out and he said, I'm going to check this out for myself from a legal standpoint, and he says, I can come to no other conclusion than this is true. God's word does validate itself. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy 
to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He was standing, guarding the cloaks of the people that stoned the first martyr in Christian history. It's in Acts chapter 7. The guy's name was Stephen. And they went and they stoned him and Saul guarded their cloaks while he was doing this. He was given letters and he went off to different cities throughout Israel to grab people and to take them back to Jerusalem and to try them because they said, this guy is alive and he is the Lord and he is the Messiah. And so he persecuted the church. And then he got letters one time to go outside of Israel up to the Damascus of Syria and to bring back people and to charge them for the offense of proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. And on his way there, he saw the risen Christ in all his glory. And he spent the rest of his life proclaiming what he knew to be true. And we're going to talk more about what he did and what he actually went through as he proclaimed the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. So here is Paul, this great torture of the church, this person persecuting Christians all around the world, and he said that I have gone out and I've given my life for the service of God, but it is not even me. It's Jesus Christ dwelling in me and compelling me to proclaim this message. He says elsewhere, woe if I don't preach the gospel. He needed to get it out of him and he needed to tell the world of the grace that was bestowed upon him, a blasphemer and a murderer of Christians. And realizing the error of his ways, he became this wonderful man of God. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you have believed. The gospel is validated through the risen Christ and those who testify to him. And that brings us to our second thought, which is in a world without hope. This is verses 12 through 19. Verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This takes us right back to verse 2 where Paul speaks of the gospel by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Some of the Corinthians were coming into the church and they were saying there is no such thing as the resurrection. That's what they're saying. Paul, writing in Romans, says that belief in the resurrection is one of the conditions of being saved. He says right there in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The reason why he ties the resurrection in with calling on Jesus as Lord is because nobody, except maybe a lughead, would call on a dead Lord. The very fact that you were saying Jesus is Lord means that he must be alive, and therefore it is conditional upon a belief in the resurrection. So Paul uses the resurrection of Jesus Christ as an example and a confirmation that there really will be a resurrection for each of us too. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Paul was trained in rabbinical studies under a guy named Gamaliel. That's documented in the book of Acts. And he is using an argument here in Hebrew known as a kalbahomer or we would say in Latin, an a fortiori argument. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater, and he's making these obvious statements to you. If Christ has preached that he hasn't been, uh, that he has been raised from the dead, how can you say that there isn't a resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith also is empty. He's going from a lesser to a greater point to get you to think this process through. 
if in fact there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ never came out of the grave. The very heart of being a Christian is to believe that Christ died for our sins and that he was resurrected by God to eternal life. If you don't believe those two precepts, then you are not a Christian. Charlie Garrett grew up in a church right down the road here, and he had no idea that Christ died for his sins or that Christ came out of the grave. I didn't know he came out of the grave. I didn't know if I believed it until somebody explained this to me. So all my life I'm telling people, yeah, I'm a Christian because mom and dad are Christians. When in fact, I was as far from Christ as I could have been. I was doing all the things that I shouldn't have done because I had no concept of what God was trying to tell me. Paul says that the entire gospel hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there were no resurrection of Jesus Christ, then he is merely speaking empty words. Verse 15. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, Christ is not risen. One plus one still equals three, people. I'm sorry, it equals two. It is so simple that if somebody tells you there's no afterlife, there's no resurrection from you, then there is no resurrection at all. And if there is no resurrection at all, Christ never came out of the grave, and your faith is empty. Paul is a false teacher because he has testified of something that is a lie. Verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Can you see how inextricably linked the cross is with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? They are actually one great act of God. The resurrection of Jesus proves the atoning death of Jesus on our behalf. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then according to the Bible, he must have died in sin. Because the wages of sin is death. If he died in sin, then he would have been an unsatisfactory substitution for our sins. The cross would have been an intergalactic waste of and we would still be separated from God. Infinitely separated from God. Verse 18. Then those also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. Even making this argument against the resurrection, Paul cannot get himself to say, dead. He says they are asleep in Christ. And if they are asleep in Christ, and Christ didn't rise from the dead, all of the people that you love, that have gone before you, that have said, I'm a Christian, and I know that Jesus is going to raise me to eternal life, them again too if you're a Christian, it ain't going to happen if there is no resurrection and if Christ didn't come out of the grave. It is not going to happen. And he says those people have perished. They're just like the bugs that we step on every single day. They're gone. That's the significance of whether Christ really came out of the grave or not. Verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. I can't think of anything more terrible, more sad in my life than thinking that you people are sitting here watching me give a sermon on something that isn't true. When you could be out swimming in the water, you could be out having a, a big meal. If you like drinking, go out and drink. You know, if you like your neighbor's wife, why not? Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, none of these things make any difference. We might as well just live and enjoy it. We are to be the most pitiable sitting here with a hope that doesn't mean simply. Because Jesus Christ really did come out of the grave for us. And that brings us to our third thought today, which is dead in Adam, alive in Christ. This is verses 20 through 34, if you're following along on 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20. But 
it is the most wonderful word to see, is the word, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. But when you're reading the Bible, there are certain words that you want to look for. One of them is therefore. If you see the word therefore as you're reading the Bible, you go back and you look and see what it's there for. You go back and you read what came before it, what led him to this conclusion, therefore. Okay? If you see the word and, sometimes it ties two things together. And if you're not following these key words, then you're not following what's going on. Paul says, but Solomon, it took him seven years to build the temple of the Lord, but it took him 13 years to build his own home. Why is that in there? What is that but in there for? And this is what Solomon is, or what God is trying to tell us with the word but. In this case, he says, but all of this sadness, all of this stuff that I've been talking about here, but Christ is risen from the dead. All of that stuff, I was just giving you that as an example of what if. But I'm going to tell you the good news now. He is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What are the first fruits? If you know your Old Testament, you've read all the way back in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and you get to Deuteronomy where he repeats the law to the people of Israel, he says, when you get into the land where you're going, I'll tell you what, we'll just read it from Deuteronomy, and then we'll talk about it. When you have entered the land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God has given you and put them in a basket. So here we have the people going into the promised land and they are given this land by God and then he divides it up into 12 sections for the 12 sons of Israel. All right, And so you have uh, a section to Judah and a section to Naphtali and a se section to Zebulun and all these different tribes within the corporate body of Israel. And each one of them then divides it up into little pieces for people. You have 12 sons, here's a piece of land for 12 sons, and you have two, so here's a smaller piece of land, whatever they did. Okay, it's all divided up, and they go and they plant their seeds in the ground. And then up comes the harvest. And right at the beginning of the harvest, there are some that get ripe first. And so what is the God instructing them to do? Take those first ones and cut them off and put them in a basket and bring them down to Jerusalem. Now first off, that's showing, hey, because if the rest of the harvest is ruined by bugs or by a uh, sudden storm or by somebody coming in and burning the field or whatever, you've just lost the only grain that you have for next year's harvest and you're not going to eat this year anyway. So you're really showing faith in God that you're cutting out the first fruits. But in addition to that, it is also saying that this is a type of harvest. It's a wheat harvest or a barley harvest. And you are saying that this is the first of them. And I'm taking it down to God as an example of my faith in you, but also in the fact that I know that all of this other is the same type of harvest. Okay? So put it in a basket and bring it to the place the Lord your God will choose you as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands, set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God, then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. These people were not Israel until they were Israel. They were not of the covenant until the time of Abraham. So before that, they were just wandering Arameans or Syrians. And he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Egypt at this point is a picture of our life of sin. We are in bondage to sin. We are down in Egypt. We're living this life. 
And he says that the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. And sin is a hard taskmaster. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, if you are a drunkard, you know how hard your life is. If you're a drug addict, you know how hard your life is. If you're in an abusive relationship, you know how hard your life is. Sin is a hard taskmaster. And he says that uh, uh, they cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and miraculous signs and wonders. And I can tell you that 11 years ago, there was a miraculous, great terror in the life of Charlie Garrett when he brought me out of a life of sin and corruption and death. And he said, I'm going to call you my son, and I'm going to clean you up from all the things that you've done in your life. And some of you here have done that as well. You've said, I want something different than what I have had in my life in the past. And this is the picture that we're being given. It's they're brought out of the toil and the oppression. So the Lord brought us out with this mighty arm and this outstretched hand and with great terror and with miraculous signs of water. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Your word, O Lord, is sweeter to me than honey to my taste. And then Paul calls the gospel the milk. And then later we get into the meat, the doctrine of the Bible. We understand why things work the way they do. They're in a land of milk and honey now. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil to you, O Lord, that you have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. And you and the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. The first fruits. Jesus Christ is the first one to come out of the grave. And he's saying if you are the same type of harvest that Jesus Christ is, guess what? You really are going to come out of the grave and you're going to be just like him. And we're going to learn about that as we get going here. It is the wonderful promise that the first fruits is God's guarantee that the rest of the harvest will come to fruit. All of you, no matter what your walk is with Jesus Christ, whether you're a weak Christian or a strong Christian, if you have done the two things and called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you are saved part of this great wonderful harvest. Verse 21. For since by man came death, by man, capital M, also came the resurrection of the dead. What he's saying here is that death came through man. He said, and death came in, and all people since Adam are dead. We're walking dead. Generations and generations of people walking on earth, living our lives dead, until Jesus Christ regenerates our Holy Spirit with us, with with the Holy Spirit, our spirit with the Holy Spirit, and brings us to unison. And now we are no longer walking dead. And he says, for as in Adam all die, we talked about that a moment ago, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, in the Bible, not every all means all, and not every every means every. And I want you to understand that. You have to take everything in context. If you belong to a universalist church, you're going to say, well, see, there, everybody's going to be resurrected. What is the point of living holy if everybody's going to be resurrected? Go right back to what we were talking about before. Do whatever you want. Not everybody is going to be resurrected to eternal life in Jesus Christ. Only those who, are, who belong to Christ. And that's explained in the next verse. It says, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Every person who believes in Jesus Christ and has put their trust in him, will be resurrected to eternal life through him. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. 
for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Revelation chapter 20 tells us about that where it says that then through death and Hades into the lake of fire. There will be no more death and Hades is the repository where dead people go. It's the place of the damned and that will never bring fear to man again because even that is being thrown into the lake of fire. For he has put all things, God, he has put all things under his, Jesus' feet. But when he says all things are put under him, Jesus, it is evident that he, God, who puts all things under him, Jesus, is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Jesus is fully God, but Jesus is not all of God. He is the second member of the Trinity. He is the one who continuously and endlessly reveals the unseen Father to us. This guy died, he wasn't baptized, so we're taking you and we're baptizing him in his place. That is not at all what this verse means. That has nothing to do with it. If we are dead now, before coming to Christ, then when we die, we will always be dead. In other words, what Paul is speaking about baptizing for the dead means all of us, every person on earth. If Jesus didn't come out of the grave, then we're dead. So why are we baptizing for the dead. Baptism is a picture of being dead with Jesus Christ, buried with him in his grave, brought to newness of life by the power of the resurrection. That's what baptism is. So if you have been sprinkled in baptism, it doesn't mean anything because it doesn't fulfill any pictures. There's, all it does is it gives you maybe some pictures for the wall of you and your mom and dad baptizing you, but it doesn't do anything because that child doesn't know what's going on. All right, or maybe you'll get a little certificate that says I was baptized on this date. That's not the purpose of, of baptism. And baptism does not save anybody. It is faith in Jesus Christ which saves you. And so what you do is you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and then you say, I want to be obedient. And I want to show the whole world that I have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and I'm going to make a picture of that. So if anybody ever wants to be baptized by me, I'm going to ask them two questions, and only two. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And the second question is, are you willing to follow Jesus Christ in believer's baptism? I ask that eight times in one day with that family. And that is all that I'm going to ask you. Because if you've accepted Jesus Christ as 
Lord and Savior. I've got no authority over you. He does. All you're doing is saying, I want to follow him to, to show the world that I love him enough to be dead with him and to be raised to life and with him in, into new life. So why are we baptizing for the dead? We're not. We are baptizing for the living. Verse 30. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts, Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? He's walking along the roads, the Roman roads, all over the Roman Empire, and beasts are coming at him. He has to fight with them to protect himself. He was beaten with rods. He was beaten with Roman whips. He was out at sea, lost at sea. That's recorded in Acts, uh, the end of the book of Acts. He was lost at sea for days and days, 14, 20 days, whatever. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. He was stoned by some people. And they thought he was dead. They left him. He got up and he walked away a little later. Probably not in very good shape either. But Paul went through all of this torture, all of this hardship, all of these trials. How many of his letters were written out of prison? And a Roman prison was not, didn't have cable TV and air conditioning. It was filthy. It was cold. It was dirty. He wrote to uh, Timothy, please, or was it Titus? One of me said, bring my cloak to me. Why would he write that? It's because it's going to get cold in the winter. And without a cloak, he was going to die. Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, what advantage is it to me if all of these things... You know what else he did? He was a tent maker. He was a tent maker. And he would go all over the Roman Empire. Instead of saying, I need you to pay me to preach to you, he earned his own way by making tents. And if people helped, that's fine. They put a little money in the donation thing. That was great for him. But if they didn't, he supported himself because he just wanted to get the message out. So here's Paul making tents and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some people offered him and he wouldn't take it at all because he says, I don't want anybody ever at this place to say that I profited from you. This is what Paul did. What profit is it? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Guess what? This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 22. I'm going to read you it in context so you can see what he's saying here. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The people in Jerusalem were being hemmed in by enemies. They're being hemmed in by these enemies, and they said, there is no hope at all. And so we're going to just take the last of the oxen, all of the grain, and we're going to have a big party, we're going to get as drunk as possible, because tomorrow we're going to die. And here's what it says, then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts. Before I tell you what the Lord says, I'm going to go back to King Hezekiah. If you know the story of him, same thing happened to them a couple, I don't know how long, 50, 100, whatever years earlier than when Isaiah wrote these words. They're hemmed in by enemies, and King Hezekiah saw that there was no hope. There's the Syrian army of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came down and they were completely surrounding Jerusalem. They said, we are coming in and we are going to destroy you. And Hezekiah took the letter of blasphemy that they had written against the God of gods and he took it and he laid it down before the Lord and he prayed and he said, Lord, we can't defend ourselves. We are in big trouble here and we need you to defend us. And it says, that night, the angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. They woke up and they're all the dead bodies. That's what the Bible records, because he had faith that God could do it. But these people had no faith. And it says, then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts. Surely for this iniquity, there shall be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord. 
the most horrific, the scariest verse in the entire Bible to Charlie Garrett is that one right there. That I could go to my grave without atonement for my sins. Because that is an infinite separation from an infinite God. And Paul says, that, that is the importance of the resurrection. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It makes no difference. Eternally separated from God without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Do not be deceived. All over the world, there are churches which teach things that are not the truth of Jesus Christ. All over the world. They take that gospel that I talked about earlier and they pervert it. And Paul says they are anathema. And they come into churches and they infect churches with bad doctrine. And I can assure you that when you go home, you should go read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and check everything that I'm saying to you today. And my Sunday school class and my Monday and Saturday class know that I say this week after week. Don't believe what I'm telling you. Because I could be leading you down the wrong path right now. And I say that so often, I realized one night in the middle of the night, I woke up and I said, you know what? They're probably saying we can trust Charlie because he's saying, don't believe what I'm telling you. And I got up, I, I went to class and I said, you know what, I tell you this, I really mean this. Don't just say it because Charlie says it, he must be honest. I really mean it. Go read this passage and go read what Jesus has done for you. Because it does make a difference. Evil company does corrupt good habits. So all over the world are churches teaching bad doctrine. And these people are really being lost because of that. And then all over America, there are churches that are teaching bad doctrine. And people are really being lost because of that. And guess what? Let's bring it closer to home. All over Florida, there are churches that are teaching bad doctrine. And people are really being lost because of that. And even in Sarasota, I know that there are bad churches and they teach bad doctrine. And people are being lost because of that. And I'm going to get even more specific. There are churches on Siesta Key. And there's only three of them besides this one right here. There are three other churches. And there are some churches that teach bad doctrine. And people are really being lost because of that. This is an important book. As a matter of fact, it's the most important thing that we have in the entire world. Because this book tells us about Jesus Christ. It's the only book on the face of the earth that tells us about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one who reveals the unseen Father to us. So if you have bad information about that book, you have bad information about Jesus, and now you have bad information about your Creator. And the gap is infinite. Don't trust me or anybody else. Read the Bible and ask God to illuminate His words if you don't understand, you can email me, but after you email, I, I email you back, check what I say. Okay? That is what I would ask of you. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. What is sin? He's going right back to the first verse. Sin is not believing in the resurrection. That's the entire context of what he's saying. Bad company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness. Don't sin by believing these people. For some do not have the knowledge of if they are in the pulpit and they are preaching that certain things, moral issues, are okay in today's world, such as homosexuality, I'm sorry, that is not true. Bad company corrupts good character. So please be careful with what you believe. I speak this to your shame, he says. I speak this to your shame. He had already given them the gospel and they're listening to other people. Listen to God. This brings us to our fourth and final thought today, the glory to come. Verses 35 but someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Now that's a great question if you ask me, because everybody wants to know. I can't tell you how many people email me week after week after week. What's it going to be like? What's it going to be like? And you know what Paul's answer is? You're going to laugh. Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive until it dies. 
Are you asking me? You, you got to sow something in the ground to know what it's going to be like. And then he gives us some applications, some actual physical applications of what he's talking about. He starts with, and what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. So you get this little thing and you say, well, what is that? And say, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's wheat. You put it in the ground and up comes corn because corn is not wheat. Or you say, well, this one doesn't look like that. What is that? Well, maybe it's, I don't know, a durian tree and it comes up rice. Right? Whatever. Each seed produces after its own kind. And we can genetically modify seeds forever. And yet it will always be that seed. If you genetically modify race, rice, you will always come up with rice. A different breed of it, but you will not come up with oats. It's not going to happen. What you sow, you do not sow that body that should be but mere grain. Perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. If you put this in the ground, you are not going to get an oak tree. I don't care what you do to it, an oak tree will never come out of this. You're going to get another Australian pine tree. That's all there is to it. What you sow is going to prove that kind of body. A body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same. So, guess what? I have been all over the world. I've been all over the world, and I have walked on the streets with passing billions of people. And I have never walked by a person and said, gee whiz, that's a panda over there. Men are always men, are always men, are always men. And I'm saying men or women, you know what I'm saying, human beings. It doesn't matter. If we believe in slavery and they're not humans, it does not mean that they are not humans. And if we believe that the Japanese were not humans when we were fighting them in World War II, that doesn't mean that they are not human beings. And if people don't like Muslims because they're Muslims, it doesn't mean that they are not human beings created in God's image, because they are. Men are men are men are men. All flesh is not the same. There's one kind of flesh of men, another of flesh of animals. So I don't go up to a bear and say, Hi, Dennis. How are you? And I know that bear is not Dennis. And I don't walk up to my chihuahua and pet it and think that it's a cat. I know that it's a dog. This is what he said. Everything breeds after its own kind. Another of fish. I don't go fishing in there and pull out a pelican. Well, you could, but I, that's not the intent. You know fish are under the water. And he said that all flesh is of its kind. He says, and another of birds. That is not a bird. That's an airplane. star differs from another in glory. I know that that's the North Star, and this is uh, the Leonids, or whatever. I know that each of these stars, and I can say, well, that star is that star. Some of them are orangish, and some of them are bluish, and some of them are bright white, and some of them are, are uh, you know, faded and, and hard to see, and some of them twinkle, and 
they are all individual stars, just like we are all individual people. But we never make the category mistake between them. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. This is corrupt. It's falling apart. And that is what will be sown into the ground. My body will go in corrupt, and it will begin to degrade. After three minutes, if you don't get air, your brain starts to fall apart. After 10 minutes, there's permanent brain damage, and that's the end of it. You will never be back who you were before. And brain damage is never repairable, even after the three minutes. It is permanent. And you go into the ground, your brain very quickly melts away. And then your, your inside organs go next. And then pretty soon, there's just dust. It is corrupt, and it is going into the ground. It is raised in incorruption. It is raised in a way that will never, never, never fall apart again. It is sown in dishonor. And yeah, if we don't get somebody in the ground very quickly, they start to stink. It is dishonorable. It's terrible. But that's what he's saying. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. We are going to be, you know, in Daniel, I think it's chapter 12, it says that the saints will shine like the stars forever and ever. It is raised in glory. I, man, I can't wait for this because I can't stand this body in the way that it's going. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I have a natural body. I can tell you that within the past few weeks, my knee has been getting worse, worse for some reason. And I think I've got uh, arthritis in this knuckle. I'm always moving when I'm preaching. And most people know why. It's because i got a very bad back. I used to be, I thought, the hardest worker in the world. Man, I could dig a ditch from here all the way up to Lido Key in about a day, and it would be 36 inches deep, and I'd just keep on going. Just give me some Gatorade. And now I can't even lift up a book without going, man, that really hurts. It is, it is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. And that is not a spirit body. Jehovah's Witnesses, once again, they say Jesus was raised a mighty spirit being. That is not at all what Paul is saying here. Jesus said... Put your hands here. See, I have flesh and blood. The spirit doesn't have uh, flesh and bone. He didn't say blood, he said flesh and bone. He said, the spirit doesn't have flesh and bone like I do. Put your finger in here. Put your hand in my side. And then what did he do? He ate with them. He walked with them. He did things with them because he was literally raised in a physical body. The same body that he went into the grave with. Spiritual is not spirit. Spiritual means that he is the Holy Spirit being put out us and into us so that we receive that and we become spiritual beings. Adam died. He was physical but not spiritual. When you call out Jesus Christ as Lord, you become a spiritual being. And when you are raised, you will be a spiritual being. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. There you go, John chapter 3, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. I have quoted over the last series of sermons that we've been doing since Genesis chapter 1, I've said this, I can't tell you how many times, the doctrine of divine election. Adam had two, a son. He had a son named Cain. Then he had Abel. God accepted Abel's offering over Cain's offering. He accepted the second over the first. Abel was killed. Seth became the chosen line, not Abel. Seth was chosen, the second son over the first. And then you go down the line, you get to Noah. Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, Shem is the second son, not the first. He is put over his brother Japheth. Go down a little further, and you get to Abraham. And he's got his older brother who died in Ur of the Chaldeans. The second son becomes the favored son, Abraham. Abraham has two sons. He has one in the natural way. His name is 
Ishmael, born of Hagar, the Egyptian. And then comes the son of the promise, who is Isaac. Isaac is born second, and yet he replaces his older brother. After Isaac, we go down the line again, and he has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is preferred over Isaac, because God said it even before they were born, as they were wrestling in the womb. You go down a little further, and you come to the son of Judah, or the son named Judah, and Judah has a relationship with his daughter-in-law, and she has two sons. There's Zerah and Perez. Perez is chosen over his older brother. And then you get to the blessing of Jacob on his son Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He blesses Ephraim over Manasseh, the second over the first. And we see this pattern going all the way through the Bible, the spiritual over the physical, the spiritual over the physical. The first king of Israel was anointed physical, Saul. The second king, David, replaced him, the spiritual son of David. And then you have the vine in Ezekiel, which is a picture of Israel. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the true vine. This is the doctrine of divine election, the second replacing the first. And it completely centers on this verse that I just read you. The entire biblical doctrine, I could give you dozens of more examples. In the book I wrote, I've got all of them listed there. All the way down there, the second replacing the first to get to this one verse in the Bible. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth. God took a little bit of dust, he whipped it together, and he breathed the breath of life into it, and he became a living being. He was made of dust. The second man, capital M, is the Lord from heaven. The physical and then the spiritual. It's just like the law. The law written on tablets of stone, the Holy Spirit received at Pentecost, is written on the hearts of men. 3,000 people died when they rejected the law. 3,000 people were saved when they received the Holy Spirit. The spiritual is always replacing the physical. And this is what's going on here. The, as was the man of dust, so are also those who are made of dust. Every one of us, when we die, are going back into the grave, and we're going to have that melting process that I just told you about. And eventually, it's just going to be a couple of handfuls of dust right back into the the earth, and that's what the Bible teaches. As is the heavenly man, here it comes, so also are those who are heavenly. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are never going to die. And you will be just like Jesus, not God, but you will be just like him in the spiritual sense. You will be incorruptible and you will last forever and ever and ever. And as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man shine like the stars forever and ever. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Nothing unholy, nothing profane, and nothing impure can come into the presence of God. But we will when we are changed. And Paul is now going to explain that change. We're almost done. Behold, I tell you a mystery. There's another word. Therefore, and, but, behold, you see a behold in one of, a lot of the new translations leave out behold, but if you see behold, you better behold. I tell you a mystery. Paul is the herald of the mysteries of the New Testament. Jesus revealed some, but Paul reveals his mysteries that were not known. Here's an example. Everything that Jesus Christ said and did up until the crucifixion, everything was under the law of Moses. You can't insert the church into what he says. You can't insert the church into the Beatitudes or into the Olivet Discourse. That is Jesus speaking about the kingdom age that is to come. And that is Israel in the thousand year reign of Christ. I have established the new covenant in my blood. That didn't happen until the night of the 
And therefore, after the crucifixion, you can start inserting the church into there. But before that, he is fulfilling the law on our behalf. And Paul says that the church's mystery now revealed in the ages. But here's another mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. This was never revealed in human history until the time of Paul. That there is a point when Jesus Christ is going to come back, and there will be people alive at that moment that will never taste death. Everybody that dies before that is going to be changed, and the people that are alive at that moment will be changed at exactly the same time. We are going to be changed instantly. And that had never been revealed before that this will happen. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, watch this, I can do it five times in a single second. You can blink your eye five times in a second. It is 150 milliseconds to blink your eye. And it's going to happen that fast. Someday, it may be today, oh God, I hope so, or it may be a thousand years from now. But he is coming and he is going to change us in the twinkling of an eye. Man, I can't wait for it. I'm going to tell you something. He explains it right here. He says, at the last trumpet. If you go on a video on YouTube and you see these people and they say there's a trumpet sound in the distance and they think that's the revelation coming, that's not what's happening at all. It's somebody just, you know, making stuff up out of their head. There are trumpets that are going off, divine trumpets in heaven that we do not hear. Maybe one went off when Jesus was born. I don't know. Maybe one went off when he was crucified. One went off when he was resurrected. But there is a sequence of divine trumpets that we're not hearing. But we will hear one of them and it's the last trumpet. And it says, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound... And it's going to be sounded for believers. We are going to hear it. How do we know? Because the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. We're going to go, boop, and it's going to be done. And I tell you what, if I hear that sound and he gives us a little little time before the trumpet and us being changed, I'm jumping so I can beat all of you. I can't wait. I can't wait for the trumpet to sound. And it is going to happen. Verse 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Ugh. He explains that in Romans chapter 5. He says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Jesus Christ died on a cross, and I am taking my sin and my guilt and my shame, and I'm nailing it to the cross with him. And I go out there and I say, I'm following him in believer's baptism. If we've been united with him in his death, our sin is gone because of him. He says this. Listen to these words. If we've been united with him in his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. It is a guaranteed done deal. I can't wait for that day. Verse 54. So when the corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And it happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ came out of that tomb and he said hi to Mary. And she turned around and says, Where's my Lord's body? And he says, I'm right here, Mary. It was swallowed up in victory, and he has promised, being the first fruits of that resurrection, that it is going to happen to us too. And I cannot wait. I cannot wait for that moment. Paul goes into such joy with his pen. You can almost hear his pen singing as he writes these quotes from the Old Testament. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? There is no sting of death in the Christian's life. I don't know, I can't tell you how many Christians I know that say, oh, I don't want to die, I'm afraid to die. Are you kidding me? I can't. I tell my wife every day, check me out. She's a nurse. Go get something. Check me out. I don't care. I, I can't wait to be with Christ. Oh, Hades, the repository of the dead, where is your victory? Swallowing human souls for 6,000 years, eating them up like he has complete reign over all of us, and he has nothing 
nothing over us. Jesus Christ came out of the grave, and we are going to be with him in his likeness. I can't believe it. The sting of death is sin. The wages of sin is death. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. What does that mean? It means that God gave the law of Moses to the people of Israel for a couple of reasons. One of them, Paul says, is to show how utterly sinful sin is. Oh God, I read the law even to this day and I say, I cannot believe the mercy that God demonstrated in Charlie Garrett. The grace that was poured out on me. The law, the strength of sin is the law. And then it has another purpose. To lead us to Jesus Christ. It is a tutor leading us. Come here, take you by the hand and just lead you right off to Jesus Christ. The strength of sin is the law. But, there's that word again. But, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58, the last verse I have for you. Therefore, remember what I said about therefore? When you see it, go back and see what it's there for. So we're going to start this sermon again, okay? <laughs> remember everything I just told you. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always bounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. He said, be steadfast. What is steadfast? Look forward. My favorite verse in the Bible. Hebrews 12, chapter 2, or 12, verse 2. Thank you. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. That's all I need of that verse. It goes on, but those seven words, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Be steadfast. If you do that, there is nothing that will ever deter you from the goal, the high calling of the upward call of in Christ. I know I blew that verse just now. Be steadfast. And then he says, be immovable. Here comes these deceivers and these people telling you that he didn't raise or that you need you can't eat pork or you got to do this or that. He says, just be immovable. Fix your eyes on Jesus and don't let anybody sway you. Be stronger than the mountain that won't move if you push. Be immovable. And then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know what people say? Oh, i got to go out and hand out tracks at Walmart because I'm supposed to be doing the work of the Lord. That's not it at all. The work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. The work of the Lord is to simply have faith in Jesus Christ. That's all the work of the Lord. And then everything you do, I go out every Saturday morning down to Newtown and I go to the projects and I witness with people. And I pray with me and a couple other guys. That's not the work of the Lord unless it's done in faith. Faith. If you do a work, you go and plant flowers at your church and you don't believe that Jesus Christ came from the dead, better you plant them at your own house, okay? Be abounding in the work of the Lord. Have faith in Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Every ounce of faith that you demonstrate, no matter how small it is, will be rewarded by Jesus Christ. All he asks you to do is have faith to believe and to know that his promises are true. Does anybody know what happened at 4.30 a.m. on 12 April 1861? It's coming up this week, the remembrance of it. 4.30 in the morning, 12 April 1861, the first guns of the Civil War were fired at Fort Sumter. 600,000 Americans died in that war. I think it was 2% of the population died because of slavery. And every single person on earth is a slave to one of two things. You're either a slave to sin or you are a slave to Jesus Christ. Anybody know my email address? A bondservant of Christ at gmail.com. Everybody on earth is a slave. 
And all those people died either in Christ or they died apart from Christ. And every person that has been born since then, the same thing. I'm going to read you something I typed for you, and we're going to be done in about five minutes. When Jesus died, he satisfied God's infinite justice for any who will accept what he has done. How do we know this? Because of the resurrection. Jesus died for our sins, just as Paul said. But if Jesus didn't come back to life, then he really didn't die for our sins. But if he did, then two great things have occurred. The first is that this man was qualified to replace the first man that Paul spoke of, Adam. The second is that Jesus Christ is fully God. The resurrection proves both of these. If that is true, and it is, then his claims must also be true. Because without the Bible, you don't even need the Bible to know this. You can know that God cannot lie. I did that in the Genesis 1-1 sermon. If you want to know it, go back and watch that sermon. You can know without a Bible that God cannot lie. It is impossible. Because of this, we must believe His words. And His words said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ has made an exclusive claim that He is the sin-bearer for mankind and that there is no other. And His resurrection is the proof of that claim. And once we accept his work, our sins are forgiven. And where sin is forgiven, it can never be punished again. So if you're in a church that tells you you can lose your salvation, please leave that church. You can never be punished for the sins again. Jesus Christ has done all of the work for us. And we can't do anything to help him. He does all of the work. It is all sufficient. Each of us has a choice. Bear our own sin before God and be condemned. Or we can accept Jesus' work at the cross. If we accept the payment, then we will be granted the exact same resurrection that Jesus had. It will be bodily, it will be incorruptible, and it will be eternal. The choice is up to each of you. I've given the sermon, now it's your turn to decide. So I've got a poem I'd like to read to you that I typed this past Monday, and we're going to be done. It's called, O Death, Where Is Your Sting? This is the gospel which was preached to you. It is also the one you received and on which you stand. It is the gospel of salvation, providing life that's new, and which will carry you to the promised holy land. What is delivered to you is what Paul also received, that Christ died for our sins according to God's word. It was, he was buried and he rose, and so we have believed, and many witnesses testify to this message you have heard. Now if Christ is preached that he is risen from the dead, how can some among you say the resurrection isn't true? If there is no resurrection after Christ was crucified and bled, then our faith as well as yours is certainly askew. And if so, we are found false witnesses of God because we have wrongly testified of this mighty deed and our faith is futile. No heavenly streets will trod and we are still dead in our sins, fallen Adam's seed. Even more, those who have fallen asleep in the Lord are gone and we are the most pitiable creatures the world could ever look upon. But indeed, Christ is risen from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And his death came through one man, Adam, our federal head. So Christ will make all alive our souls. He will keep. But there is an order to the resurrection call. Christ was first, the pattern for the rest when he comes. When he does, he will make a shout out to us all. And we will rise as if to the sound of heavenly battle drums. Then comes the time when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, 
when all rule, authority, and power have come to an end. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, never more to bother. Then the Son will, to the Father, eternal rule extend. But you ask, what will we be like after our time of sleep, after we have been buried in corruption's pit so deep? Our body is sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but raised in power. The resurrection story. The first Adam became a living being, it's true. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, life to me and you. And as was the man of dust created so long ago, so are those likened unto him, also made of dust. And as man, the Lord from heaven, you know that we shall bear his image for eternity, just as we've discussed. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit that which is incorrupt. But we shall all be changed, and so heavenly streets will trod. In the twinkling of an eye, the change will be abrupt. When the last trumpet sounds, we will be taken to glory. We shall all be changed. The completion of the gospel story. Where, O oh death, O oh where is your sting? When Christ our Savior, us, himself, to him does he bring. O oh, where, Hades, O oh where is your victory? When Christ translates his children to eternal glory. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord. My beloved brethren, be steadfast in all you heard and saw, and cling confidently to God's eternal word. Know for certain that your labor is not in vain. Be of good cheer. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power that it gives each Christian to know that there is no pain in death and that it's a welcome visitor because it gives us a short rest before you come and keep us going for eternity on batteries that are more powerful than the Energizer Bunny. Oh God, it's glorious to know that you will just fill us for eternity with strength and power and the ability to glorify you with our souls. However we may be, whatever our seed is, whatever it comes out to be, I know that it's going to bring the most glory and honor to you, that more than we could possibly imagine. We give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor that you are due in the glorious and the exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.